Hey, Kat. Welcome back to Book Fair, the podcast for readers by readers, asking the question, should I read that? Hi, Ash. Welcome back to Book Fair. So shall we begin with Kat? Tell us what you're reading. Well, I have not had as prolific of a reading two weeks as I did last time we chatted, which is normal. I want to be clear. This is normal for me now. <laughs> I really started the year with a bang. That is not a pace that I could keep up. I think I mentioned last time we chatted that I was about to start or maybe had just started Dolly Alderton's new book, Good Material. Mm-hmm. I finished that last week. I did not like it. Mm. I did not like it. It's about – it's a breakup story and for 90% of the book, she focuses on the man who's broken mm-hmm. up with. And then the last 10%, maybe not even 10%, 5% is in the perspective of the woman that breaks up with him. What do I even want to say about it that doesn't sound mean? She writes an unlikable male character. You're not supposed to like him. So it's 90% someone that you're not supposed to like and who's just really annoying and vexing and emotionally immature. And I'm just like, why would I want to read that story? Yeah. (laughs) I know some of those men. Thankfully, I'm not dating one. I don't, I don't want to know more about them. I don't want to be in his head. I want to know about it. I was really curious about Dolly writing a male character. Yeah. I think of her as such a girl's girl, and I think that's just because of her book, Everything I Know About Love. Um, but she writes about female friendship so well. She writes women so well. So I was curious about how yeah, she would I mean, write a male character. I think there are a lot of men that – are similar to the character that she wrote, but I'm not interested in knowing any of them myself. <laughs> so at that point, it's like, why? We have plenty. I don't really feel like you needed to make up it's another like, we one. We have enough of those, actually. Thank you so much. Let alone write 250 pages in his annoying mind. It was, it was really perplexing to me. I'm not sure what she was trying to do with it. I thought for a while it was going to be like a Fleischman is in trouble where you get his perspective and then you get her perspective and you realize they're just on totally different pages and both of them are right and experiencing just there's can't sure. can't get on the same page about what's going on in their lives and this was not that the whole time he was complaining you're like this guy is a loser who needs to get his life together and then you hear her perspective and she's like this guy's a loser who needs to get his life together and we're like yep so the whole book yeah it was disappointing I mean, I read the whole thing. Her writing is so readable. I read the whole thing. Um, But I would say if you – someone asked me, shout out Kenzie, if she should read this because you're going to see it in every bookstore. It's it's really popular. It's the Read with Jenna choice. I think I saw it made the New York Times list. And there's a lot of Dolly Alderton fans out there who I think love that type of sort of observant, pithy style that's directed towards our generation. And I said to Kenzie, which I will say to the other listeners, if you're thinking about reading this book because you want something that's about people in their 20s dating, dealing with modern challenges and communicating like people in their 20s actually communicate, you should not read this book. And instead, you should read The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donoghue. Okay, as you were saying that, I yes. immediately thought of The Rachel Incident. I we like, loved no, I love- The Rachel Incident. <laughs> the Rachel Incident. Yes. <laughs> Just skip good material yeah. entirely. I love having the same brain as yeah. sometimes. <laughs> we both loved the Rachel incident. Everyone, I've given it to multiple people. Everyone has loved it. It's terrific, and I think it will scratch the Dolly Alderton itch if you have it. 
and satisfy you in ways you didn't even know you wanted to be satisfied. It's a great read. Okay, great. So we finished good material. Anything else you want to tell us about? Yes. Then I just finished uh, a book called Redeployment. It's by Phil Clay, K-L-A-Y, and it won a National Book Award a number of years ago. Let me see what year it was published. 2014. And it's a series of short stories about uh, Marines in Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan. Wow. And I had had it recommended to me a, a handful of times. It's um, been really popular and received a lot of good, good uh, responses. And um, it was it was really good. I'm trying to think about who I would recommend this to. I think if definitely if you like short stories, okay. this is a nice mix up from the typical short stories that I read. And certainly contemporary short stories, even about daily life, I feel like are not often focused on the Middle East. And I think our generation, uh, we were so young when that was happening mm -hmm. that we didn't like have contemporaries or classmates who were being deployed. And so I, I felt like it, it's been sort of a cultural blind spot for me that I, I think that it filled in that space nicely. And the writing is excellent. He captures the tenderness and the humanity amidst the violence and atrocities and fear and horror uh, really nicely. And yeah, I liked it. Okay, great. Redeployment. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm not giving it like a rave review. Reading about Iraq and the Marines. Sure. <laughs> isn't like necessarily an enjoyable experience but i did think it was very valuable i think a lot of the stories have been published in the new yorker or the new york times or you know so if you want to just take a one-off i will say that my favorite short story out of it was called prayer in the furnace prayer in the and furnace. i think you can just find it online one cool thing about reading this week is it was a nice compliment to small things like these um, because this short story, Prayer in the Furnace, is about, it takes um, the perspective of a chaplain, a Catholic priest who is stationed at an army base in Iraq, and he's grappling with what he's being told in confessions from the Marines there about what they're doing that's uh, against international law. Okay. And he's grappling with how, what he should do with that information and what his role is as a priest in the face of so much horror and sin and and how he finds grace in that and how he decides what he should bring forward and how he should support these marines so a lot of similar themes to small things like these yeah what about you Yeah. So I finished two of the books that I was reading last time we talked. I finished The Vulnerables. I loved it. So wonderfully written. Really interesting friendships, both between the main character and the parrot and the main character and the teenager. Nunez does unlikely friendships so well. Yeah. 
Then I also finished 112263. I believe on our last episode, I said the title wrong both times that I said it. I said it wrong again when I corrected it. Oh, did, oh no. <laughs> I didn't catch it the second time. I feel like I kept wanting to say 66 because of 2666. But I just picture like a big book with numbers on it. And that is what kept coming into my brain. It is 11. 2263 and I finished it <laughs> and I enjoyed it the ending didn't totally work for me and that kind of colored my relationship to the rest of the book I really liked it I gave it four stars but the ending I found like a little boring compared to the rest of the book and I felt there were a lot more interesting avenues that he could have taken interesting and that I would have really liked to see but overall and you listen to it right yes overall very enjoyable and then i started profit song by paul lynch Ooh, i have that on my stack it's a dystopian novel uh strangely enough also an irish novel that's uh the theme of 2024 for me i suppose but it is a dystopian novel that is about this family when the republic of ireland is coming into a totality well, totalitarian state. And I've just started it. And so I'm interested to see how it unfolds. But the narration style is very interesting. And it's clear, like the tension is there immediately. So I'm excited for my plane ride tomorrow to really dig into that. And then I'm teaching one of my all time favorite novels. So I'm rereading Passing by Nella Larson. And a true just like delight of teaching is getting to reread books and get to watch the students read them for the first time. And as I started reading Passing Again this week, I was just blown away by how incredible that book is and what a delight it is to get to read it again and to watch teenagers read it for the first time. I'm having such a good time. I've never read it, I have to admit. Oh, really? I know. You should definitely read it. I think it's a perfect compliment if you love Gatsby, yeah, you have to read Passing. It okay. is the perfect pairing for Gatsby. I mean, it's 20s New York. It's this like really interesting, unreliable narrator. There are all of these conversations about like the queer politics involved in it. Who like is this a love story? Is it not a love story? Who is involved in the love story? Hmm. Okay, it is such an incredible book. I remember thinking I should read it when the movie came out a couple years ago. I haven't seen the movie yet, um, so I think I might offer that as extra credit for my students, and maybe I'll watch it as well. Now I'm like, maybe I'll watch it as well and also send you a little essay, and then you can give me extra credit. <laughs> and then you can get some extra credit comparing the novel. First, to at first the, mention of extra credit, I'm like, ooh, okay, like, I can I do it. I'll probably do that. <laughs> I can do it. I can do it. I can, I'll rack up some extra credit. Uh, hit us with the book news. So um, this was just a fun little piece of news I saw last week, a library, a library in Ohio, a library, received a late return. There was a book of poetry that was due back in 1931. And they just got that book back. Someone's great grandchild found it and returned it to the library, which I thought was so lovely. That is wonderful. It's a great story. 
some other news the national book award announced that they are dropping the citizenship requirement so the prize will now be open to immigrants and other long-term residents who have made their home in the united states you no longer have to be a citizen of the united states to be considered for the national book award yeesh i didn't even know that was still a thing well it isn't anymore um speaking of yeesh i don't know if you saw this on twitter but it's making its round a lot uh, because there was a school in Florida that had to send out permission slips for students to read a book by a black author. That was it. There was no like heavy themes. No, cons- oh it God. literally was like your child will be reading a book by an African American author. So That's horrifying. Pretty bleak for sure. Um, with my eighth graders, we're about to read Fahrenheit 451 and talking about book bannings and burnings so we'll probably chit chat about this in class as well but thought that was horrifyingly contemporary example yeah and then the final thing did you read the midnight library i didn't but i've had it recommended to me should i should i read it um i mean i would say no but everyone else in the world would say yes okay so matt haig wrote the midnight library yep it was like the most popular book of 2020 it was the top like goodreads choice hugely popular book yeah i read it with my book club when i was still in chicago because it was so recommended and all of us were kind of like eh. but people love it and he just sold the rights to his newest book so that will be incoming for any Matthew okay. Hank fans out there. I bet we have some fans out there who are going to be very excited to hear that. But that's that's the book news as as I know it. I don't have anything to add. I haven't I haven't seen anything big happen myself. Great. Well, should we hop into our book of the month? Small things like these. Let's hop into it. Small tell us, things. Tell us things. about these small things, Catherine. Small things like these, like this book. (laughs) (laughs) Small things like this book. Um, That was good. Thank you. It wasn't, but thank you. (laughs) I know, but but I just love you, so it was good. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) laughing at that joke. Okay, small things like these is a small book by Claire Keegan, an Irish author, and it focuses on a man named Bill Furlong who is living in a small Irish town in 1985. And it takes place in December in the weeks around Christmas while he is working as a coal merchant, making coal deliveries around his community and preparing with his family for the Christmas festivities and uh, the Christmas celebrations. And while he's out delivering coal, he makes, Bill Furlong makes uh, an alarming discovery at the local convent, which has a big role in their Irish community. It's where there's a girl's school and um, Catholicism is uh, a, a very present and commanding aspect of Irish culture, especially in their town. So he discovers something shocking and much of the novel is him grappling with what to do with anything about what he discovers at the convent while also thinking about his family in the lead up to Christmas and his past and 
uh, how all those things are changing the way he thinks about himself and his community and how he wants his life to look in the years ahead. Wonderful. Thank you for that, Catherine, Synopsis Queen. So the book came out in 2021, actually it was published on my birthday in 2021 and had a better year than I did that year. <laughs> In 2022, the book won the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction and was shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize and the Booker. I haven't heard of the Rathbones Folio Prize. Neither have I, but I really like the name. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll start like, following that. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like something I would want to, like, I would want that on a plaque and I would hang yeah. it in my house for sure. Or I just want to start so. telling people at parties, like, oh, have you been reading through the Rathbones Folio Prize? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I'm sure you'll make a lot of friends that way. But all that to say, it's had a really warm reception. Um, I have a few kind of polls from some reviews. I really liked this NPR review that said, while the vice-like rhythm of daily life threatens to suffocate his spirit, it also hints at the deep loss he would suffer if stability is renounced. Mm, and not, I thought, must be in reference to Bill Furlong. Yes, which most of the book is inside just Bill's head. So yeah. you are existing with Bill. The Guardian described it as a as plunge pool-like the narrative implies significant depth below its close bounded surface. Something I thought was interesting is almost every review compared Keegan to Dickens. And I was listening to an interview with Keegan. She has not read any Dickens. Oh, that's fascinating. Cause I saw that. Which was funny a lot because too. she also has him request David Copperfield. Yeah. Which the me is like, this is a very significant illusion. She's doing this. And, in the interview, she's like, oh, I haven't read it. <laughs> just thought it would be a funny thing for him to request. <laughs> what was popular in 1985. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> that is really interesting. Um, but overall, quite popular. There are a few things that were mentioned in reviews that I'd love to talk about once we get a little more into spoiler territory. Which, yeah. shall we, we enter? Before we get into it, um, let's just share where we heard about this. I... Oh, yes feel like you couldn't have gone into a bookstore in the past year without seeing this on the bestsellers table. Oh, yeah. It seems like it's been front and center in absolutely every single bookstore. It was everywhere. Um, I actually got this for my birthday this year from my, my dear friend, Megan. Thank you, valuable friend and listener, Megan, <laughs> who found this in a McNally Jackson and a bookstore owner. It's like, you have to you have to get this for your friend. Your friend loves to read. This is it. Um, and they were right. So thank you. Great gift. Nellie Jackson. Thank you, Megan. I do feel like everyone and their mother received this book for Christmas in 2022. It came out, like you said, on your birthday. So right before Christmas. Yeah. And, and then it's set at Christmas. And I think it ended up on a number of like Christmas gift guides because I feel like stocking sized it's like I think three or four copies went around my family's Christmas um but it's still out there it's sitting on those bestseller tables and for good reason okay yeah. great well we are going to get into spoiler territory so we will let you know when you can tune back in um this isn't a book with a great number of spoilers but it's difficult to discuss the book without just discussing it as a whole. Partially, it is so small that you 
kind of take it in one gulp. Mm -hmm. I read it in one sitting. I think I read it in two. Where do you want to start? I'd like to start at the very beginning. Great. Because this book has an epigraph, which I thought was interesting. I How often do you read the epigraph, would you say? Um, always. I admittedly sometimes skip it if it looks too long and if it's a poem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. I If there's an epigraph, I will read it. An introduction, I might skip. Yeah. Yeah, if it's a if it's a long poem, it's not happening for me. But I did read this one and I'm going to I'm going to read it now cuz it's short and I think it is interesting and worth discussing. The Irish Republic is entire to and hereby claims the allegiance of every Irishman and Irishwoman. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all to all its citizens and declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all its parts, cherishing all of the children of the nation equally, which is an excerpt from the Proclamation of the Irish Republic, 1916. So we're starting off with that, a proclamation of equal rights and equal opportunity and equal treatment by the Irish Republic for all Irishmen and Irishwomen. And then we start the book and the hypocrisy of that statement becomes increasingly realized as the pages turn how did you yeah. find how, what did you think about it when you first read it i think especially the line that stood out to me was cherishing all of the children of the nation equally mm -hmm. particularly when we think about bill seeing his mother in the women who like the fallen women which i'm excited to talk about just the concept of fallen woman um yeah. seeing his children and those women seeing him himself in this experience and all of the different ways in which people are turning a blind eye towards children in this book. And I think that is what Keegan wants you to think about is how the nation itself and those in power can be so hypocritical, especially when you think of religious settings mm -hmm. and this idea of like, everyone is loved under God, like this ethos of love, this ethos of care that so often turns into like exploitation or sure inequality yeah. based on different factors. Totally. I was thinking on a, just like a smaller scale by, by using this at the beginning, I think she starts by telling you that she's making a political statement. While there are definitely gray areas that the characters are gra grappling with in the book, I think by having this at the very beginning, it makes it clear where she stands. Definitely. Which I think is a really effective tool um, to say, this is the political statement. The characters will struggle because that's what being a person is. But being an author is making it clear <laughs> what what you think and where you stand. And she does that so staunchly with this epigraph that I, I thought that was just a really interesting choice. Yeah. I also, something that I, in one of the reviews I was reading, they talked about that I found interesting was the lack of time markers in the book. Yeah. And I think also having the epigraph from 1916 and then going in, it was hard for me to place where in time we are, even when they say like, this is in the eighties. You don't feel that and this like 
absence of time markers, this absence of modernity is a reminder that they are behind the times in a lot of ways. Like mm. in the review, it was saying this is the country was still sunk in the past. You still needed a doctor's prescription to buy condoms. Like they, she wants you to feel almost out of time and having this from 1916 made was a reminder that's like oh yes like 60 years has passed <laughs> but nothing has changed right and also like how much has changed now i think is the question as well yeah i guess okay i'm going to concisely share my my epigraph thought is that so much of the book that that we'll talk about is exactly discussing complicity and uh action versus silence and turning a blind eye versus facing things but the epigraph is so clear it provides a really clear starting point for the reader to then jump into it so that you feel like you have kind of a moral standing ground that allows you to kind of see through it in a way that obviously these characters can't or they're struggling to um mm -hmm. what we're skirting around we may have to switch up the order of this we alluded to it in our uh, synopsis of the book this shocking discovery that for a long weeks but the convent in this town is operating as what i think this is maybe a name that has been used since they've been shut down i'm not sure if they were calling them magdalene laundries at the time do you know anything about that i do not well we're gonna call it a magdalene laundry during gosh it was like decades and decades and decades of irish history they were operating what were essentially like work camps for young women out of convents and women would be sent there young girls and young women would be sent there for a variety of reasons uh either by their families or i guess you would have to be sent by your family i can imagine it's also a situation where if you don't have a family this is where you might kind of wash up yeah it just made me sad thinking about all of these girls. The numbers are really striking that all of these girls had been sent by their family. That's so yeah, sad. Yeah, because it <laughs> was... That's tragic. Think about all of these families sending these girls. I think what's insane about it is that it lasted from 1700s through the 1990s. It's a huge amount of time, but also yeah. not that long ago. An estimated mm -hmm. 30,000 girls. And that, that, I mean, that's just a staggering number. But these were girls who, right, you, you said the fallen women. So they were either had become pregnant and were sent here while pregnant or with their newborn or their children were just behaving promiscuously. I think that's the implication. They didn't give a clear reason of like, you could only be sent here in this way. But we only, the women we meet seem to be women who have had babies or are about to have a baby. Right. Yeah, or were prostitutes, or maybe not even prostitutes, but were just behaving in a way that yeah. was a little too sexually liberated for this Catholic society. And so they were uh, kept in these convents, and then they were operated as, like, work camps. A lot of them operated as literal laundries, doing laundries for their towns and communities. Uh, amongst other, but they couldn't leave. They were they were locked in there as if yeah. it were a prison. And you get the impression early on that something 
strange is happening there. There are rumors, and Bill seems kind of vaguely aware of those rumors, but he doesn't seem to be paying that much attention to them. And then he discovers it when he's making a a coal delivery, which is his work. He's bringing coal up to the convent. It's a chilly December night, and he opens the doors to the storage shed, and there's a girl who's been left there, who's been locked in there in in the cold night air overnight. Before we get there, I want to talk about his first interaction with them when he's dropping off the logs and he has to go the opposite way around because something is locked and so he sees oh yeah go ahead he sees the girls for the first time and what the first thing he notices are the haircuts where it's clear that someone just like he says something like it looks as though a blind person had it's just like a blunt like cut. Their hair with scissors. Yeah. And there's something so humiliating about that. And one of the girls comes up to him and asks him to take them away so that like she can drown herself. Like she would rather die than be there. And he doesn't quite know what to do with this information. Right. But just kind of gets the drops off the logs. And is taking note that as he leaves, he like hears the click of the lock, locking everyone inside. And that is when we first get this like building tension because we know there's something wrong there, but we don't know what is going on. And then when he has to go back on, is it Christmas Eve? Christmas Eve. He goes back on Christmas Eve and finds the woman in the shed and she is cold and has clearly been locked in there and then he goes and has this insane moment inside of the laundry where it's clear that the nun is trying to smooth things over Mm -hmm. she says they the girl had been playing a game yeah they were playing hide and seek or something and she asked like why didn't you call out and even bill is like okay something is going on here but something i found so interesting about that scene as he becomes very aware of his like masculine energy inside of the convent where suddenly he's like, mm-hmm. oh, just me being here has the power to throw this dynamic off. And he starts talking about how he wants to be a contrarian because he is here and he doesn't right. actually do anything that will help any of these girls in there. But he is like finding some power in being able to occupy this space that no other man is occupied right and also in a space when there there is no role for a man like his power is existing on the outside and it it, and there's no template for how it's supposed to interact with the the other women there he does say now i'm trying to find it um he says to her like are you okay yeah are you okay you let me know if you need anything as he's leaving He's like, if you need anything, you can call upon me in a way that made me nervous because I'm like, you're getting her into trouble right now. Yeah. Yeah, I was nervous about that too. As we're talking about it, I'm realizing how much creepier it was. (laughs) Like, like, it's a very eerie, eerie book. It's not a scary story or or like a ghost story. You you feel a real sense of safety and home when you're in – when you're – you spend the whole time in Bill's mind with Bill – and that feels very secure to me. He has 
a small, quiet home with a lovely wife and five daughters, and they're making Christmas cake. It feels very uh, like the March sisters. That's interesting because I felt very insecure in Bill. Oh, really? That is really interesting. I think because he feels so like he's unable to sit still. Yeah. And you feel like you're kind of tottering on the edge with him where he does have this like comfortable home life that he has worked quite hard to achieve. But I felt it especially like when he goes to the neighbors to get the tea to do the lock and he's like imagining his life married to this woman or when he is going through the convent and I he feels so on the edge of a breakdown the entire time to me like the him like mid crisis that's so interesting I didn't feel that way at all he seemed aware like I definitely am like following all those points with you but he seemed so rational to me that it that felt like a safe excursion to take with him I was like oh you can safely imagine these other lives because you're not doing you're not going to do that I didn't even get the sense that he wanted to I just got the sense that he was like so secure in where he was that it was like safe for him to explore through his imagination that's interesting it felt like a lack of like an inability to act rather than a not wanting to act to me Mm, okay readers weigh in did you get more of a sense that bill was unable to act and he wanted to or that he didn't want to act and therefore was comfortable thinking about alternatives and other lives because he knew he didn't want to that was the tension for me throughout the book is like is he going to act and then at the end when he ultimately makes a choice because it so much of his life was not making choices where he just kind of like was moved through has been at the same job since he was a child well teenager whatever but like he is just moving through on a sort of conveyor belt of life that is going relatively smoothly but nothing extraordinary is happening to him and then he kind of encounters this and it feels almost like this is his moment for something extraordinary to happen to him and he gets to be a hero for the first time um and he gets to act in a way that normally he does not i read it more as i'm so glad we're talking about this because i read it more as often in life you're i mean the small things right like these <laughs> the small things like these <laughs> the the choices you make every day that are good and right like the way he he's a kind good man i think that's very obvious about him he the way he treats his he, where he cares for his family and the way he cares for his community and treats his employees and and helps people and shows up and these daily kindnesses are well yeah daily the things you experience every day and it's rare that you have a moment in which you have to do that on a in a big scale but it's it's just scaling up what you do every day interesting to me where i was just like oh this doesn't feel like a different choice that he has to make but he's been making these small choices every day that are indicating the same sense of right and wrong and the same sense of moral courage and and caring for others and then sometimes you have to flex that muscle in a much bigger way but maybe you never will maybe that maybe that opportunity never comes to you but maybe it does and you have to ask yourself can i scale this now 
And I think that's the question he's doing. It's like he knows who he is and what type of man he wants to be. And and he's, he's doing that in small ways, but then can he do it in the big way when he needs to? Because I think if I thought of him much more as just doing what is expected of him than mm-hmm. like going above and he kind of reminded me of um Dickie. Oh really? From the beasting of just this like man who is doing his job and showing up and also questioning his life and because there's I mean it's such a midlife crisis book as he's like oh am I gonna do this forever? I'm almost 40 now and I've been doing this and now I don't know if any of it matters Mm -hmm. and now I think I have a much more I didn't realize this but I think I have a much more cynical read of him like this is his chance to matter and I think partially I got that from his musings of like his midlife crisis feelings and then also him being in the convent and feeling that like need to or feeling that power, that like contrarian streak and going against what is expected of him for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't read it like that at all. I think too, because, okay, what I think Dickie would think is, yeah, how can I, what's, this is my opportunity to matter. But I, to me, this character feels like, and to me, that's a, that's like a weak and misdirected pursuit in that, I think that what the character here is doing is instead of saying this is my chance to matter, it's this my chance. This is my chance to, to stand by what I think matters, by what I know matters. Interesting. To to decide what it is that is meaningful and like what makes like life good, and to do that even in the fear, in the very high likelihood that it could radically change everything that you've built your life to in this moment now you're in this moment where he's like do i do i go get this girl and and acknowledge that there's something wrong here and knowing that that could ostracize my family from our community and maybe my daughters won't have the same educational opportunities because they can't go to the convent school but the opportunity to really like say this is what's right and this is what matters in a big way is much that takes so much more courage and heroism than doing that in small ways every day and certainly that's an act of of I think like grace and heroism too the ways that you live your life every day but what do you do in that big moment I like these two different reads I think it could go either way I'd be so curious what she would say yeah and now if you read this book tell us how you feel about Bill I'm sure it says a lot about who we are (laughs) yeah Or what type of men we? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I want to say that. You have a lot of really great men in your life. I'm like, uh, (laughs) can you trust a man? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, he was taking care of his family. I don't know. I don't think you can trust a man. (laughs) I trust and love several amazing men, (laughs) which is maybe evident in my reading of this. (laughs) Um, To be clear men in my life who are listening to this i love ya um but as a rule can you trust a man i don't know yeah this is good i mean this is this is a helpful instinct to have yeah (laughs) i want to support this instinct in you while also 
advocating for the goodness of mankind generally <laughs> yeah you can probably trust some of them but i'm not sure about bill i'm like i don't think this is a power thing you're like it's always a power thing <laughs> <laughs> I, okay i'm gonna find the scene though because i do this i think this is no, i know what you're talking about i think he's just aware of it i think he's aware of like the strange dynamic of being kind of like when you walk into um like when a woman walks into a like an all boys uh like locker room before a basketball game and you're like oh there's just no role for a woman here and that makes me both entirely powerless and entirely powerful it doesn't even have to be a gendered thing being the only child in an extremely adult situation or an adult in like a secret hideout where you're just like there's no script for how i should act here and i could really change everything if i wanted to or just slink out i see that I see it. Okay. I'm I'm curious about how other people will read this. Now I want to know yeah, everyone's feelings on this. I also, I liked Bill, but he reminded me of a lot of characters in books or movies that I'm like, oh yes, this is the sort of like stagnant man that we are meeting. We're, the stagnant man that cannot sit still and is now feels like boxed in. Mm. yeah readers weigh in i thought he was just feeling itchy because he discovered something that he knew he had to act on (laughs) (laughs) okay which also speaking of like this discovery of it all i am curious about the role of women in this yeah um novel novella whatever we choose to call it and the idea of complicity Mm -hmm. because the women especially come off as complicit and as knowing what is happening here but also knowing what you need to do in order to look after your own and to survive yeah definitely yeah and part of that is because the women are obviously more involved in the domestic matters Mm -hmm. the domestic web of this community and part of it is that their their daughters are in school at this convent and also they're likely involved with actually taking things to this laundry. I think it's mentioned that it's like known that this, the laundry that comes out of this convent is known to be the best. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like if you need your whites white, you bring them to the convent. And when he first mentions it to his wife, she's like, you need to leave that alone. Yeah. And then it's another woman who, after he has the interaction, comes up to him and is like, so I heard you had a bit of a brush up at the convent you need to consider where your daughters go to school. You need mm-hmm. to consider this business, how everything is tied together. And I thought it was interesting to have all of the warnings come from women. Yeah. I think this is just such a, a like sad depiction of how op- oppressed people when operating in systems that are oppressing them, uh, the inclination to to move in fear and out of fear in order to provide for yourself and for your loved ones just like pervades everything. And I, I, the fear of becoming a woman in this convent and knowing that that's something that's like, there's no difference between you and and that woman, except for that, that woman's community turned against her and that, that these women are just terrified that that could happen to them. Absolutely. And, or their daughters, like, what does it mean? Or their daughters. Yeah, yeah. 
And that's just lousy because then, of course, you want to be like, woman, you know the best way to make sure this doesn't happen to your daughters. Just make sure it doesn't happen to anyone's daughters. Make sure it doesn't happen to anyone's daughters. But But then who has the power to really do anything? And I think the book is interested in that as well because particularly with the ending. So he takes one person and takes her out and is going to bring her home. And we don't see what happens. We have no idea how this is going to unfold when he arrives home on Christmas Eve with someone from this convent that he has broken out of the convent. But we can imagine how that conversation will go with his wife. This is a very small town, so we can imagine how like the long-standing ripples of this and again perhaps i'm being cynical but i also couldn't help but wonder like what will that do for the rest of the women in there as well like is this something who has the power to make a change i guess i'm also interested in yeah this feels distinctly irish in a certain way and that the church in the catholic church plays such a gigantic role in society we just can't I don't think we can entirely understand given the way that religion works in the U.S. Um, That was a bad way to put that. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. The influence, the, the stature and influence and hierarchy of society in Ireland is just drastically impacted by the role of the church. Yeah. And how difficult it is to go up against those systems as an individual actor is intentional because then it that fuels complicity where you can say, well, does it really matter if Bill takes one person out of this convent? Like the system we know is going to continue. Um, So you can sit there and say, well, does it really matter if I do anything or say anything when I am one person going up against this huge machine? Right. That has hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of years of political capital and cultural significance and can easily ruin my life and can i actually improve anyone else's is it worth ruining my life and my child's life to maybe help someone else yeah and i think it's interested in these questions yeah and is also an institution that provides meaning and community and connection in important ways to these people um, this is this is where their babies were baptized, and this is where they, you know, were, are married, and their understanding of faith and God and love and grace and all those things. This is where it's, you know, held. And how do you separate that from the political? Is I think really complicated. If if you're in it or if you're looking in from the outside. Yeah, I think that is true. I had something I was gonna add, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, something thinking about the ending being so ambiguous in the interview I listened to with Keegan, something really wonderful that she shared was that she trusts the reader's imagination and how important it is to be able to respect and trust your reader to give them something like a completely open ending and trust that they will go forth Mm -hmm. with what you've given them and with these characters and know that they will take the right message from it. And it did make me feel so nice just to hear her be like, I trust you. (laughs) 
to interpret yeah. this um, smartly and to make of it what you will. Yeah, I think that's also the mark of a really good writer who knows that she's expressed what she wanted to express and there's no ambiguity for her and what she wanted to say and anything beyond that she's not worried about. Yeah. She stands by what's on the page and the rest, she's happy to have you fill in the blanks. That's that. It's a really good insight. Okay. Um, other things we want to chat about in small things like these. No, I'm – well, is there anything else I want to say? No, I feel like we hit some really good topics, actually. Should we talk about um, the Jigsaw Puzzle? It's a really short book, and the the prose is pretty sparse. And like Ash, like you said earlier, it's not taking place in a clear time in terms of like cultural objects that would give an indicator as to like what year it is, because not that many objects are even mentioned or used, but a few of them are. He's reflecting on a past Christmas when he really wanted a jigsaw puzzle. And to meet his father. And to meet his father, yes. Oh, Bill. <laughs> and then he gets a hot water bottle instead. And it's very sad for him. But then he's reflecting on it as an adult, thinking of all the nights that the hot water bottle kept him warm. That How that was actually a really useful Christmas gift. But then his daughter, in 1985, doesn't really seem to know what a jigsaw puzzle is when she asks her dad, what did you want when you were a kid? What did you get from Christmas? I love that he tells her he got a puzzle. Yeah, he lies to her. And you feel so sad for him in that moment. And I think there's something so lovely about the wanting a puzzle and wanting to know where you came from. And like these two kind of (laughs) the puzzle of Bill's life is who is his father. And he sort of finds out in the book and it doesn't have this the revelatory moment that he really wants it to and then he goes to buy himself a puzzle and they don't have it (laughs) yeah he's almost preserving her innocence he doesn't want her to know that that he couldn't have what he wanted that he couldn't have what he wanted or that you could ask for something from santa and he might not be able to bring it yeah yeah okay I think we touched on basically we touched on everything we wanted to everything we wanted to talk about um yeah let's talk about the movie yes so big news <laughs> big thing big, um, <laughs> big how, how many times could we make the same joke and how many times will we laugh at it that is the Every real time. question <laughs> um they're making this into a movie and Catherine, who is who is going to be Bill? Killian Murphy. Yes. Uh, Killian Murphy. Beautiful Irish man. <laughs> He's bringing his razor-sharp cheekbones. Piercing blue eyes. Piercing blue eyes. <laughs> to small things like these. To the complexity of this tale. I think that'll be wonderful. I think, I think it's going to be excellent. I also imagine the movie form will let us know. Which way the director interpreted this? I imagine oh, with definitely. casting Murphy, it's going to be maybe a little bit more on my side. Oh, I love Killian Murphy. I do too, but he rarely plays wholesome man. He is a wholesome man, but he often That's plays true. a more I want to see who's directing it. I kind of forgot. That might give us an insight too. Okay. Did it say? Let's see. I know Killian Murphy is also producing it. 
Tim Mylance. I don't know who that is. Hmm. Okay, well, that gave us no insight. Yeah. But I bet the movie does. I bet you're right. I imagine it'll be quite dark. Yeah. I think it will feel darker on the screen. Oh, last thing I wanted to say from this interview. Keegan said she is deeply disinterested in drama, but very interested in tension. Okay, I, I feel like that tracks in this book. And I thought that makes a lot of sense for this book yeah, where it is not dramatic. No drama, lots of tension. But it's kind of tense from the start. And I agreed with her where she's like, drama gets boring. Yeah. But tension exists throughout. Like there's always an opportunity for tension. Um, and I thought that fit well into the book and yeah. will make for a very interesting movie. Definitely. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, I think like a, a very rich topic too for a movie. I think it will adapt really well. Yeah. I'm excited to see it. It just premiered and it's getting, it's getting good, good reviews, but I don't think it will be available in the U S for a while, but instead of casting this movie, which we usually like to do, Ashley, a question for you. Yes. If small things like these was a first date, where would it take you? Okay. See, this is going to be, I think, especially interesting giving our given our diverging perspectives on this. This is bringing us on very different first dates. I think that is (laughs) true. Um, For me, this is definitely a walk. This book is taking you on a park walk, but it's a park walk in which you like accidentally encounter something really intense and you have to decide whether or not you are going to just like move past it and sort of laugh and that's what you do at first. And then it's like, no, I think we have to circle back and handle this situation. But this is like a walk in the park that is supposed to be just sort of nice, cozy, he seems normal and then you have to encounter something i think mm, okay i like that where i think for me, he's taking you <laughs> this was like a cozy pub date we're having a guinness where it's very it's just it's cozy it's a neighborhood pub i feel very comfortable here i know where we're going this is this is all comfortable and easy low-key but then he shares something really serious about himself that he needs to just tell me early on okay it's no big it's no big drama but it is like oh now i can't think of a good thing that it would be like i can't have children or <laughs> i was imprisoned oh god <laughs> <laughs> like something pretty shocking but it's related in a really comfortable way <laughs> okay Good to know. Either of those. Either of those. You can work with those things. This is a good man, but that is something you'll have to deal with. Okay. Interesting. There will be this is gonna be a trial that you will face together. Okay. Um, tell us about what our next episode is going to be. Yes. Okay, in two weeks, we're we're In two weeks, we will be putting out an episode on what to read on spring break. So we're going to go through some of our favorite breezy, beachy reads, some good road trip listens, some audiobooks we love. Uh, If you're just having a staycation or maybe just doing a cozy winter weekend, uh, if you're not going on vacation, what you should read at home to feel like you're on vacation. 
and also what to definitely not read on vacation. We're going to cover all these things and also talk about what we are reading on our respective spring breaks. Ashley is taking a proper spring break, and I am not, so you'll get both sides of it, the fabricated and the real. Fantastic. And we wanted to tell you about our next book that we will be reading. It's called Redwood Court. It is written by Delana R.A. Dameron. It is her debut novel. She is a poet. So as I mentioned in our last episode, I love reading poets' prose. So I am particularly excited about this book, but it is a kind of semi-historical fiction set in the Jim Crow South in the 1960s. It is the youngest of the family, Micah, Mika, we don't know yet, but in a- Let's go Micah. Micah, love it. Commit to Micah. She lives in an all-black working-class suburb in South Carolina, and we are learning about that community, her family, the neighbors, and finding joy and love in an America that wants to see her fail. So I'm excited about this book. We chose it partially because it was endorsed by one of my all-time favorite writers and humans, Hanif Abdurraqib in Hanif We Trust. So we're very excited to read this. So if you want to start reading with us in one month, we will talk about it. Yeah, perfect timing to grab it from the library, from your favorite local bookstore, to check it out from Libby, or ask your mom if she has a copy. Excellent. Um, Or enter our giveaway. So true. And Catherine, where can you enter the giveaway? You can enter our giveaways. We give away our book club book each month at our Instagram, which is at bookfairpod. And uh, we're having a lot of fun over there, mostly in the form of giveaways. And as of now, there's not that many people entering them. So your chances are really good. I know I, for one, have entered a lot of Instagram giveaways in my time, and I have never won a single one. I've won exactly one. because there's thousands of people entering them. But this time, you could actually be a winner. And who doesn't like to be a winner and to get free books? So check us out on Book Fair Pod. Also, read small things like these and please tell us what you think. How do we feel about Bill? Yeah. Do you like Bill? Are you you Team Cat? Team Ash? We got how do you feel about Bill? How do you feel about men in general? Maybe is the question we're actually you asking. The men in your life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'd love to hear from Yay. you. And we'll see you in two weeks with book club, or with book club with beach reads Yay. and vacation reads. And with that, happy reading. Happy reading. Bye, buddy. Bye, buddy. <laughs>